Welcome to our After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Our podcast is here to help teachers and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. If you work in education and looking to improve or develop your skills, then this podcast is here to help you. Welcome back to the After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Georgie here, Director of Learning and Development for the Classroom Partnership, and I'm returning to focus on a new series of podcasts. I'm joined today by Andy Bridge, a current Deputy Head Teacher, and Debbie Davis, Head Teacher of an independent special school and experienced SENCO. Welcome both. Since the year 2000, the number of TAs working in schools has more than trebled from 79,000 to more than 243,000. They now make up about a quarter of the full workforce in schools, with schools spending £4.4 billion each year on TAs. With this level of spending and the fact TAs are often working with the most vulnerable students in schools, it is crucial that all TAs are highly trained and deployed well by leaders to allow them to have the biggest impact possible in their role. So across this series, we're going to explore all aspects of SEND, building the confidence and knowledge of all staff involved in supporting students with their SEND needs. So today in episode one, we're exploring what TAs need to know about SEND code of practice. This is the statutory guidance for any organisation that works with children with special educational needs and disabilities. The current version of the code was introduced in 2015 and covers almost 300 pages of crucial information. So hopefully this podcast will help to summarise and clarify the key content from these 300 pages. So let's start, Andy, by asking what exactly is the code of practice and who does it apply to? Hi, Georgie. Yeah, of course. So um, the code of practice basically is the statutory guidance for any school or any other organisation that works and supports children and young people that have got SCND. Um, and it can go all the way up to age 25. Um, so it's just that that guidance to hopefully give us a consistent approach, regardless of what setting we're in, to make sure we're all working in the same way to support those students with SCND. So um, it's not a legal document. So sometimes people say, oh, the Code of Practice is it's a legal framework. It isn't. It's statutory guidance. So schools have to follow it, but it does um, make reference to and it does link to various legal frameworks. So the Equality Act 2010, the Children and Families Act 2014, and of course, where they're legal frameworks, they must be followed, um, obviously, by law. Um, it doesn't really matter what your type of setting is, whether you're primary school, secondary, an academy, a maintained school, special school, everybody has to follow the SEND code of practice as an education provider. And for me, it's probably, you know, obviously, we'd hope that all our staff know all of our policies, but being realistic, not everybody probably sits and reads and digests and enacts every single policy that we have in schools. Whereas for me, the, the SEND code of practice is something that everybody in school should know. TAs, teachers, school leaders, governors all need a really good understanding of that policy to make sure that we're working together in, in the best way for those students. It sounds like it's quite crucial, doesn't it? It needs it needs to be known well by everybody. So that's the key part is actually getting that good understanding. Would you agree with that, Debbie? 
Absolutely, and thank you for inviting me today, both of you. It's lovely it's to be here. Great to have so, you with us. Well, thank you very much. So, yeah, um, the current version of the Code of Practice is from 2015, as, as you both mentioned, but it was it was only modified slightly uh, in 2014 from their version. And I'm going to actually read what, what it says. It, it, it defines SEND as... A child or young person has SEN if they have a learning difficulty or disability which calls for special educational provision to be made for them. A child of compulsory school age or a young person has a learning difficulty or disability if they A. Have significantly greater difficulty in learning than the majority of others of the same age or B have a disability which prevents or hinders them from making use of educational facilities of a kind generally provided for others of the same age in mainstream or mainstream post-16 institutions. So that's that's exactly uh, what, uh, what we're talking about today. And it describes basically four broad areas, broad categories uh, of SEND within it. So I'll just cover those. So the, the first one is known as communication and interaction, which is when a child finds communicating and understanding language difficult, which could be due to lots and lots of different reasons, possibly including autism or the processing disorder. Secondly, you would have cog cognition and learning. Uh, this is a category of SEND for children who struggle to learn uh, numeracy and literacy skills, which could include conditions such as um, dyslexia, dyscalculia and dyspraxia. And then moving on to the third area, social, mental, emotional health. And this is very broad in category um, for a child who has severe difficulties in managing behaviours of, of their emotions. It can include things such as depression or anxiety or self-harm, substance abuse, eating disorders or conditions such as ADHD. And then finally, we have the fourth area, which is sensory and or physical. And this is for children with special, uh, pardon me, with physical or sensory disabilities, which affect their ability to access learning, such as visual or hearing impairment or a, a physical issue, uh, issue such as cerebral palsy. So that, that's a really good sort of summary of the four different areas. So if if everybody sort of keeps that in mind around the broad categories, so communication and interaction, cognitive and learning, social, mental and emotional health and sensory and or physical um, challenges. So th thank you for that summary, Debbie. That's really, really you've unpacked it all really well there. So, Andy, how does how does the code of practice differ from any earlier legislation that we've perhaps had around? Yeah, of course. So it, it basically just builds on and, you know, as you know, over time, things get reviewed and tweaked and, and they get feedback from parents and from children and, and teachers. Um, so when the SCND code of practice was introduced, um, it basically was trying to make a consistent approach for every child that's got SEND, regardless of where they live. So we've probably heard that phrase postcode lottery before. 
Um, and it was trying to avoid that basically it was saying that if a child's got SEND, then the provision that they should access and the support that they get should be the same regardless of the type of school or the part of the country that they're in. Everybody should have this consistent process. And I think the extent to which that's been achieved, like we could debate um, if it's mm -hmm. actually worked or not, but that was kind of the underlying um, principle. And one of the real key considerations when they were drafting this legislation was the fact that parents and families should have their voices heard more in this process. So under previous legislation, um, some students with SEND or parents described things like being done to them, like they didn't feel they had an input and a voice and like their opinions on how their child should be supported were considered in, in the way that they should. So that's a real consideration. Um, and then I guess finally, like another big difference was that um, the SEND code of practice got rid of those old fashioned statements of SEND um, need and it replaced them with EHCPs or education healthcare plans. So these are legal documents that outline um, additional support that some students will be entitled to if they're likely to be disadvantaged without that support. Um, and because it's then that legal framework, it's it's the local authority and the school working together to get that provision in place. And they need to be reviewed with all of the relevant members uh, associated with that child at least once a year. Right, it's good. It's good to understand the differences there. I think as well, and 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 where the changes and and the logic behind those as well, Andy. So thank you for that. So Debbie, in terms of what's happening in the classroom, actually to support students with SEND, what what does the uh, code of practice advise to everybody? So I, I would cover really three three main points. So firstly, in, in terms of inclusion, wherever possible, children with SEND should be taught alongside their mainstream peers, unless the needs are so great that the, the, this just can't be facilitated and uh, and within the mainstream provision. But also, the SENCO has absolute overall responsibility for pro providing provision mapping and ensuring that the support for each child is identified, implemented and essentially monitored. And then finally, the third point that I would cover would be that overall teachers have responsibility for using TAs to good effect within the classrooms. And I would point out that actually it is a teacher standard. It's teacher standard eight, deploying support staff effectively. But TAs should, of course, as, as well, they should be proactive themselves and SENCOs need to make sure that the TAs are really well trained I think yeah. that would be the three that I would cover mostly there. Yeah, and, and that will actually help then distill all of the code of practice as well, won't it, with the support, the TAs. Yeah, we've got a number of different trainings um, here at Thirsty Scholars as well to support TAs. So if you're listening to this and you want to find out what specific supports available, then we have got a number of sort of different areas that will be able to support you. Um, so I was sorry, go ahead, Andy. I was just saying, I think that's such a good point that um, yeah, I, I work in schools, Debbie does, and so often like we spend our CPD budgets and our time on a, a really intricate CPD programme for teachers, which of course we should and, and they need. Often um, support staff in schools, teaching assistants, other pastoral roles don't get that same Absolutely. kind of quality in the frequency of training and it's so important that, that we prioritise that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I would come in on the back of, of what you've said there, Andy, because I always find it really uplifting and, and and really powerful when I see that TAs are actually being observed and developed 
within their institutions because that's it is so important to value everyone's professional learning journey and to give them the best bespoke provision so then ultimately the young people benefit yeah ultimately and and also it's about growing our um rtas as well they could be the teachers of the future so it's actually if you invest in them now actually there's there's that sense that you're growing your own workforce aren't you as well so uh, yeah it's uh, it does definitely come around so obviously schools are really really busy um thankfully i think uh, we're recording this at the moment at the end of uh, the summer term so everyone's a little bit tired but um, we're hoping that you'll be listening to this in September when we um, when we return um, and ready and refreshed for the start of term. But what top tips do you have for how teachers and TAs can work together most effectively? Debbie, what, what are your thoughts on that? So, so for me, it's about regular communication and information sharing. And, and an example of that for me, the best practices that I, I've ever seen when I've gone into observe lessons has been when the teacher has briefed the TA to such an extent that the TA can weave and, and mould and shape with the rhythm of the lesson and they know exactly what's expected of them. And that's not only beneficial for the TA, but, it, you know, ultimately, again, the students will benefit from that. And I think that's one of the main areas that I think is probably where your starting point is. Yeah, brilliant. And Andy, you're building on that? Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd echo Debbie's thoughts there. And like, we're all busy and we're always going to be busy. But students with SCND are some of the most vulnerable students we've got, like, We've got to find that time to invest in them and have those conversations and um you know and prioritize them and prioritize the learning and and even just from a financial um aspect you shared in your introduction george like the amount of money that schools are spending on tas every year mm. is huge like we've got a responsibility to ensuring that that has an impact and that it helps those students so i totally agree with debbie regular communication but i think also like understanding that whatever we put in place to support our students with SEND, that'll help everybody. Like everybody benefits from that support being provided to um, students with SEND. So it is worth our time investing in. And then I guess my final point is more one for SENCOs and for school leaders to consider, but this works really well where staffing's consistent and that's really hard, especially this year with COVID and staff absence and student absence. Um, you know, there's maybe been a bit of a, a constant cycle of staff coming in and out, and that's not ideal for supporting vulnerable children. Like when it works really well, it's the child knows who's coming in to support them. The teacher knows there's been that dialogue in advance. So this can be a tough one with the circumstances at the moment, but it's, I guess, something for us to aim for is to try and get that staffing really consistent. I totally, totally agree with you. And um, and also actually making sure that you've got adequate resource across the whole whole portfolio of uh, of all of your classes and that people aren't sort of split between two areas because that often happens as well. Um, so here at Thirsty Scholars, we have got a number of um, sort of TA courses, including awareness of basic um, SEND code of practice, which uh, people are more than welcome to sort of look at. Um, and schools can access the whole of those resources as, as a package. And we also have a number of formal qualifications, including our higher level 
level teacher qualifications. So, you know, if someone is actually listening to this and thinking about becoming a TA, then then we've got sort of a formal qualification route that you can look to go to as well. So uh, please come and join us. Please come and uh, become a TA and make a difference in that classroom because uh, you really, really do help to uh, help support the learning for uh, all of our schools and all of our pupils. So in our next podcast, we'll be exploring how TAs are deployed in schools and consider the impact that that has. And we do know that concerns about teacher workload and a commitment to the inclusive practice has led to a huge increase in the number of TAs, but we still need more and uh, to ensure students get the pos best possible support. And so also that schools get the best value for money out of their TAs as well. So it's a good balancing act, as Andy's alluded to. It's uh, it's important that we consider what research tells us about TAs and how they can be used to have the biggest impact on students. So we're going to focus in on that area in our next podcast, but you can pick up our After the Bell podcast, which are released on a weekly basis during term times and provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational. And you can access that on your daily commute, on your treadmill or as you're focused of the day. Thank you for listening and we'll catch up with you very soon.